This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Wonia Tebow has spent her life studying ancestral skills. As the owner of Buckskin Revolution, she teaches classes and workshops, sharing her belief in the coexistence of humans and nature. In this episode of Anchored, Wonia and I discuss the desire to live off-grid, tanning deer hides, and her remarkable experience on the popular TV show, Alone. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Brownells. Brownells has been in business since 1939 and is a leader in firearms distribution. But Brownells carries more than just guns and ammo. They also carry binoculars, rangefinders, survival kits, and countless other tools and products. Right now, they've got an impressive list of scopes available on their site. Precision is important when out in the field, and Brownells can ensure that you're set up for accuracy and efficiency. I'll include the direct link in the write-up to this episode, or you can head on over to brownells.com. Again, that's www.brownells.com. born in Oakland, California. My parents met in the Bay Area of California. And when I was still a baby, decided to get me out somewhere more rural so I could grow up um, a little more like I did. So when I was still an infant, they moved us to the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains in eastern California up. um, Yeah, right backed up on the mountains that make up the eastern border of California and Nevada. So I was raised up there, here, and then in my adult life have been a lot of different places and have been kind of slowly working my way back towards my origins. Now, I'm going to ask you something uncomfortable. (laughs) How old are you? (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't mind talking about it. I'm 44. Okay. Now, were your parents pretty outdoorsy? Both extremely outdoorsy. Um, They met in the Sierra Club, and my mom was an avid hiker and backpacker with the Sierra Club, and my dad was an ultra runner. So, you know, 100-mile trail runs and that kind of thing. Spent, you know, every weekend out doing a 30-mile trail run, training for 100-mile runs. Um, so I definitely spent a lot of time getting dragged into the mountains and canyons around here as a, as a child, and that was definitely very influential. Right. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say that... The, neither of them are interested in the or have really spent any time exploring the kinds of skills that I do, but they're both outdoors people, certainly. Well, that's the perfect segue. Can you go ahead and tell my listener these skills that you do because they're fascinating? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, I do a huge range of skills, but my major focus for a long time has been ancestral skills. So those skills that our ancestors used to get the things that they needed for their daily life from the landscape around them. So that looks like wild foods, wild medicines, you know, a lot of interaction with plants and, um, you know, harvesting materials for baskets and fiber to make cordage and all of that kind of thing, as well as hunting and hide tanning and wide range of the things that one needs for daily life. And I also spend a lot of time living off grid and growing a lot of my own food. So kind of integrating, you know, recognizing that it's pretty hard to live as a hunter gatherer in today's world, trying to at least choose those life ways that allow me to live closest to the land and with the resources that I need around me, whether that be, you know, farming and off grid tech technologies or whether it be more true ancestral skills and wild foods and also trying to stay you know in recent years at any rate trying to stay in touch enough with a modern world that I can actually share these skills with others and be be an example as opposed to just running off into the woods and never looking back which was certainly my fantasy as a young woman and so it's looked a lot of different ways throughout my lifetime I think a lot of us have that fantasy about running into the woods and never looking back and and like you, I followed it in a lot of ways and bought a place in the middle of, you know, the bush and really did aspire to do that. I had a baby and things kind of changed a little bit as far as, you know, being able to run and never come back is probably not on the table right now. But a lot of people listening also think about that. And I guess I'm really curious about your story because I'd love to know how it started. So what was really the one thing that set you off? Was there, like, what opened Pandora's box for you? Did you start with mushrooms? Like, what was it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I would say that I definitely had a drive to learn all of these things from early on. I was obsessed, you know, all of the books that I read in high school. And I was very much a bookworm and kind of, I'm an only child, so I wasn't super socially comfortable. So I spent a lot of time by myself reading as a kid. Um, and that was very influential. So I, you know, I just dreamt of being Ishii or Karana from Island of the Blue Dolphins or Laura from, you know, all of the little house stories. But I would say that my first dabbling in some of these things were fiber arts. I, I started knitting. I started crocheting as a young woman. And then my friend and I taught myself to knit in high school. Also was interested in herbal medicine in high school and started delving into the plant world in that way. And also academically, I was always drawn to biology and um, botany and biology classes were a focus for me that, you know, I was pretty clear that in my higher education, that's what I would focus on. So in that way, the kind of, you know, using things from the wild and the knowledge of the wild transferring, you know, ethnobotany as opposed to just botany um, was definitely a gateway for me, but also a really formative moment that I would say 
really um, shifted things for me and sent me in the path I'm on now was in college. After my freshman year of college, I did a backpacking field course for a summer. And one of the things that we did was we were in the Teton Mountains in, in Wyoming and studying bighorn sheep and mountain goats. And I found a place where a mountain goat had shed its entire winter fleece. So all of the downy layer in the spring had just kind of slumped off in one piece. And I just knew that it was important and that I could do something with it. So I packed this big mountain goat fleece out of the high country and then I needed to figure out what to do with it. So I got back to, to my, you know, home in the foothills and found a local place that taught spinning and had spinning supplies. So I went and I got a drop spindle and carding combs and taught myself to spin. And then that kind of created this whole cascade of, wow, you know, like I used to just knit, but now I don't have to buy yarn. I can learn how to make it from things that I find. And then the very next summer, I did another field course where I was introduced to some of the ancestral skills like friction fire and bow making and wood carving and was told about a skills gathering where people get together to teach that. And that, I mean, I changed my whole world around in order to be able to go to that gathering. And that just totally broke my brain and introduced me to all of these skills that I thought were basically inaccessible and lost in the past. And then I met all of these people who were actively pursuing and teaching them. And I was 19 at that time, 18 when I found that mountain goat fleece and 19 when I went to that gathering. And so that that was my in and my whole world became focused on that for the next well, for the rest of my life, really, but um, for the next many years, I mean, those were the years of wanting to run off naked into the woods with just a knife and never look back. I was I was in school. I was studying environmental studies and biology. So that also, you know, those skills paired with my love of the natural world and also, uh, you know, deep education in how much we were impacting it negatively. And so it seemed like the only, you know, I was in that, that angsty young person stage of like, I don't want to be part of the problem. What can I do to live a beautiful life and reject this thing that I'm being told I'm supposed to do, which is destroying the world we live in and that I love. And so to me, the ancestral skills just dovetailed so beautifully with my education in, you know, natural history and botany and environmental studies and what current modern lifestyles are doing to the planet. You know, it's funny. You just kind of set off a spark in my head. When I was younger, I always thought that if you were into knitting and cooking and all those things that you were, you know, quote, domesticated. And being a young rebellion and being a young outdoors woman, I refused to go down that road. So I was always so much more interested in like fishing and, and, and adventure. But it's funny, the more that I've matured and grown as a, as an, you know, as a woman, the more I've realized that those two things intersect, it's not domestication. It's just being the total outdoors person because back in the day, I mean, our ancestors, <laughs> they didn't wake up to fish for fun. Right. They were out there try trying to feed themselves and stay warm. So it's so funny all these years later to watch it all kind of intersect to where we are today and realize that knitting is something or like, you know, I see these basket weaving classes and all of these things that are making cordage. Like you said, spinning. And you're the perfect person to ask my questions too. So <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna pick through your timeline, but then along the way I wanna ask you questions about the skills themselves, if that's okay. Absolutely. Yep. Okay, so then you go to college and did you get your degree? I did. Yeah. I, I think that had I been at a different college, it might have been harder for me to stay in school. I definitely felt tempted to 
as I say, run off into the woods with my knife and never look back. I happen to have gone to uh, UC Santa Cruz, which is a college that is in the mountains and has a huge campus with a lot of wild space. I actually lived wild in the woods while in college, illegally camping on campus property. Um, and, you know, so I was able to do the skills every second I wasn't in class. And also I was studying biology and environmental studies. So I did my senior thesis on native uses of different animal parts. You know, I was able to bring the skills into what I was doing. And so I focused on botany in my biology degree and animal natural history in my environmental studies degree. So here I am studying mammalogy while also learning to tan hides. I mean, it was it was perfect. So, you know, had I been um, a finance major in New York City, I probably would have dropped out of school. But I was studying biology and environmental studies, an amazing wild place. And I got to have a lot of classes that were field courses and, you know, would go out and, and hike the trails while talking about different plant families. And so, yeah, so I graduated in 1997 with a double major in biology and environmental studies. And then I, I went to graduate school in 2000, 2001 to 2003, I think. I was in grad school for environmental science. I know that you are still semi-nomadic. It seems like you are anyway. Is that on purpose? Uh Yes. I mean, in a way, right now, I would say that I am more nomadic than I would be by choice because I've been focusing really hard on putting together some of my online courses and I've got a couple different book projects and I'm not, haven't been able to work like I did before. So I haven't been able to pay rent. So I've been staying at different folks' properties and being nomadic for that reason. But I'm, it's definitely pretty ungrounding. And, you know, when you are not totally grounded in place and a global pandemic hits, that's pretty unsettling. So I was already thinking that it was going to be, you know, a, a, fairly temporary phase of not having at least some amount of grounded home base. Because I, I have had a lot of home bases over the years, but been semi-nomadic by choice in terms of traveling a lot to teach at different events and kind of having seasonal migrations. I lived for many years on an off-grid homestead in Oregon, but would come down and spend months of the year in California and in Arizona in the winter and, you know, having more wild adventures. So I'm always going to be semi-nomadic in that way, but also a lot of the skills I do are very land-based and really do better with some amount of grounded wild space to be in. So that is definitely what I am, what I'm looking for now and um, still have, you know, some, some questions and balls in the air in terms of where and what that'll look like. But the degree to which I am pumping out content right now and engaging with the world in a much bigger way than I ever did before. You know, I've had a ton of publicity in the last year and a half, two years. Um, and that's really shifted my world. And I'm still kind of catching up to the new reality and the degree to which I do need to be a little bit more in touch. Like I've been living um, on a place where I have to drive an hour for cell reception and have incredibly slow Wi-Fi since, uh, since last August. Um, and recognizing that while there's so much that I love about that place and that life, I can't do the things that I'm trying to do right now from there. So, yeah, uh, it's always it's always that balance for me of the, the wild living and the sharing and inspiring others. And, you know, what do I do for myself and what am I giving to the world and how do I how do I keep enough for myself while still giving my gifts? That's the big question. 
Coming up, Bonia shares her remarkable story about her time on alone, and we discuss some of the main reasons to tan your own deer hide. On that note, our Fish Leather Tanning Masterclass goes live next week, and our Deer Tanning Class is soon to follow. Get access to all of Anchored Outdoors' masterclasses and premium content at anchoredoutdoors.com. Again, thank you to Brownells for making this episode possible. I never knew how important optics were until I started hunting. From scopes to rangefinders and binoculars, Brownells is a one-stop shop for hunters of all experience levels. Check them out at brownells.com and keep them in mind when it comes to making your next big purchase. After you and I had spoke the first time and you told me that you had been on alone, I got onto the internet to learn more about it. And I was absolutely captivated. And, and it's no surprise why they, why they chose you to be on the show. So I don't want to dive too much down that story because I know everyone wants to talk to you about the show. I really want to talk to you about you, but I would love to know how, like, how did that all come about? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's an amazing story. You know, I've been, I've been teaching skills like this, um, and, and the major skills gatherings all around the country for 20 plus years now. So, you know, as these shows got more and more popular, I would get request, you know, Naked and Afraid was after me before they even came out. And every year I have to say like, just the very premise, just the title of the show is the polar opposite of how, you know, what I'm trying to share. I'm trying to empower people and have them feel good about being in the woods naked and for God's sake. Um, <laughs> So, and I think actually thinking back on it, even alone had approached me before too, and I hadn't even paid attention to it. So I, you know, I get a lot of requests and a lot of these shows are, you know, reality TV. And I even engaged with one and I won't mention names because I had a very bad experience, but I let them come out and film me and talk about it. And I just got a gross feeling and it was very clear that they were going to take my life and sensationalize it and make it into something that it wasn't. And I wanted no part of it. So I never thought that I would do television. However, at that time, so I, I lived on this off-grid homestead in Oregon for many, many years and taught skills courses up there. And it got to where my impact in this community was a little too much. Like it just wasn't working for me to run full-time courses there. It affected the other members of the community too much. And so I left that and was kind of, you know, kind of felt lost because I had put all of my thirties and a lot of, you know, my life savings. And, you know, I built two homes out of dirt from the mountainside on this land and built a business there and, you know, had a big root cellar. I had dug by hand with a pickaxe and was growing all my own food. And that was so much of my identity, but I ended up leaving it because it just wasn't working and not knowing what was next and traveling the world a bit. I spent like four months in Southeast Asia and came back not knowing what to do with myself and found my way to this program that I had known about that I had never really been interested in, but it was a, a nature connection and mentoring and skills and permaculture program, which was kind of funny for me to want to participate in because I was running a program very similar to that. But I had been running it by myself and was very isolated in my life up there. And I wanted, I wanted community and peership in it. So I became a student in this program. And I was doing that for two years and it got to the point where, you know, like teaching is so much a part of me and who I am. It's very important to me. And I was setting that all aside to be a student. And I got to this place towards the end of my second year in the program that I just felt needed. I felt like I needed to be seen for what I had to offer and to start giving my gifts to the world again. And I didn't feel enormously seen for, for what I had to offer amongst the other students because I was just a student in a program and not, not in a teacher role. And we were getting ready for this survival trip, kind of a primitive all wild foods, you know, very minimalist camping trip that was the kind of the final project for the second year of this program. And 
I had offered a class that no one had attended to get ready for this. And I felt really unseen. And I voiced this thing to the group. I don't feel seen. I want to feel seen. And then we had the trip and I had this amazing deep encounter with a bobcat on that trip. And the whole trip was really huge for me because I'd done a lot of primitive trips before, but this one was coming from such a different intention and such a place of connection and listening and group process and being in deep relationship with the land and being on wild land from that place had felt so different than the way I had done these trips before. It really set something off in me. And I said, I, I need this again. Like this used to be such a big part of my life. I want a much, much deeper dive, a longer time, less people, like much more wild. And I got out of that trip and I checked my email and I had an invite from the alone show. And it was exactly the deep, wild, minimalist wilderness experience that I was looking for. And But I wasn't thinking television when I said it, but I also had just specifically voiced, I want to be seen and I want this wild adventure. And I thought, I would probably never have considered this before, but it feels like I spoke exactly this desire and the universe dropped this in my lap and I have to pay attention to that. I can't carry the beliefs that I carry and ignore this message from the universe. So, okay. I'll, I'll talk to you, casting director. Um, so I did, and it just felt like, you know, so like ridiculous number of signs from the universe that what I was supposed to do. I thought I would go on to do a third year of this program, but the time commitment for a loan meant that I had to choose between either a loan or the third year. And then the next session of my program, I went and they said, we've changed the timing for next year's programs. And they had slotted out, they had pushed it back to exactly the point at which I would be able to participate again. I didn't end up participating again. A lot in my life changed during the course of that year. But, you know, all of these little serendipitous moments that were just the universe was like, there was no way for me not to say yes. It was ridiculous. And, you know, because alone had sought me out rather than me applying, I felt like my chances were pretty darn good of being selected. So it just felt like I stepped on this roller coaster that I couldn't easily step off of. And that's that's how it all happened. It happened because of the fortuitous timing during which they reached out to me. I love it. I mean, you can't ignore that sign. So tell me what the show is. If for someone who hasn't seen the show, what exactly happens? Yeah. So the, the idea of the show, and this is why I considered it, whereas I hadn't considered all of these other shows is because there is no camera crew. There is no script. There is no story arc. You are dropped in the wilderness with only 10 things 10 things of your choosing from a list they provide. It's not 10 of anything, or I would have brought a rifle. And the idea is you get dropped in the wilderness to stay out there for as long as you possibly can and film the entire thing yourself. And the one who, then they do 10 people at a time and whoever stays out longest wins. So it was, you know, very much the amazing wild wilderness adventure that I had been looking for and calling in. And at first I felt kind of disappointed that we got as many as 10 items, but it turns out that 10 items is really not that many. And, you know, food, you, we, one or two, up to two of those items can be food, but only two pounds of food, which is a remarkably small amount of food. So, you know, living wild, minimal tools. You can bring a bow, but you can't, but you have to be a natural wood bow, um, or mostly wood. It can be laminated wood, but, you know, not a compound bow cannot bring a rifle. You, there's a lot of, we could only have barbless hooks and only a few of them, you know, so really limited gear. And it's you out there in the wilderness getting by however you can for as long as you can and filming it to share it with the world. That is amazing. So what did you pack? 
<laughs> Let's see. Um, so I brought a sleeping bag. We were going to the Arctic. I didn't know that when first selected. I knew it was going to be an intense wilderness climate, but I didn't know it was going to be that extreme. It was definitely by far the most extreme environment that the show had ever been in. So a sleeping bag was very key. Um, a cook pot. And there was a limit. It could only be as big as a two-quart cook pot. A ferro rod for making fire. So a ferrocerium rod that you get sparks off of. A knife, a Leatherman tool, um, a saw. I brought my bow and we were allowed nine arrows and a quiver. A fishing line, we were allowed 200 yards of fishing line and 25 hooks, only barbless hooks. And I did bring a food ration. So I brought um, two pounds of pemmican. What is pemmican? Pemmican is a mixture of dried meat and rendered fat and dried berries. So yeah, sleeping bag, cook pot, knife, Leatherman, saw, ferro rod, cordage, my bow, fishing line, and pemmican. That is 10. Well, that's a pretty good list. So then what happens? They drop you off in the middle of the bush and say, see ya, don't die. <laughs> um, I mean, there are, they do, there are ways for them to check that you haven't died. So you have to, you have to check in twice a day. Morning and evening, you send a little, they send you a text basically saying, are you okay? And you respond with, okay. And then as time goes on, they do start to do medical checks. Like when it's starting to get to where you could be having some, you know, more extreme physical things going on from, from hunger, lack of substance. You know, that's most people suffer a lot from hunger out there. And, you know, they do occasionally come to give us new camera batteries and such, but we, they would do what they call blind drops where they would just drop a bag off on shore. We have a dry bag and we leave our dead batteries and our, you know, SD cards with our footage on the shore and they replace them with fresh cards and batteries. So, you know, they know that you're that you're still out there if they're still getting that and they've get they're getting your signals. And then also they have a GPS on us at all times. So there is someone tracking our movements as well. So how long did you make it? I was out there for 73 days. What? In, in the, in the mm -hmm. snow, was it snowing? <laughs> yes. More snow would have been, would have been nice. It wasn't a super, super snowy year, but yeah, we went into, um, I came out, um, in late November. So it was like 20 below by the time I came out. So we went, you know, we started at the very end of fall. It was already freezing every night before we went out, but yeah, we got snow day three. So it was, it was pretty extreme climate for sure. Okay. So I, I wasn't going to go down this road, but I'm so fascinated right now. <laughs> <laughs> what was the hardest part? You know, it's interesting. Um, I get asked things like that a lot. I didn't experience it as hard. I had an amazing time and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced. You know, I mean, I was very, very hungry for a long time. I had very little food. I lost uh, a third of my body weight. I mean, I was, I was, I was sent to the ER and on a refeeding program for some time after and just coming back to full, um, you know, vibrant physical health. It was a pretty, pretty extreme physical thing. So, you know, I would have expected to be that hungry and drop that much weight to be really hard. I didn't experience it like that. I didn't really experience loneliness out there. You know, all of the things that are supposed to be so hard. <laughs> the hardest part for me was the fact that I had to leave, the fact that eventually I had to prioritize my own body. You know, I knew we had medical checks and I was told on day 40 that they were pretty concerned about my health and my body because I had lost so much weight. Um, I felt great. I didn't want to go. I mean, I was, you know, don't get me wrong. I was uncomfortably hungry and uncomfortably cold. But those, 
you know, the discomfort of that was more than outweighed by the beauty. I mean, this was the life I had dreamed about since I was, since the time I could read, you know, like I was living every childhood game, every childhood fantasy. It was so amazing. And in this, I mean, this place was so wild. It was so epic. It was so gorgeous. You know, I experienced, you know, I went two full weeks without bringing in any food besides berries. And I went through a period of feeling like I was starving and feeling a little bit weak. And then I felt like I adjusted and my energy and my body bounced back. And I felt like it was because I had learned to to transcend and shift my metabolism towards living off of beauty and living off of wildness. Just like the extremity of this place was all bare rock. I mean, this is Canadian shield. It is mostly bare rock and low growing sphagnum moss and scattered trees and this huge lake. It was so unbelievably breathtaking every moment that that just completely superseded any hardship. So I'm not even sure how to answer what was hard. The hard thing was knowing that it wasn't permanent (laughs) and I would one day have to return and feeling my body finally, you know, give out. Like I, I didn't really recognize um, the needs of my body and the way it was wasting away until towards the end and finally coming to terms with the fact that in fact, the medics were right. And I was starting to push the edge of, of physical harm to myself. That was devastating, you know, and I had always thought until the last that I would never choose to leave, that they were going to have to drag me out of there. But I got to realizing that the next time they came out to do a medical check, I wasn't going to pass it. I, I knew that, you know, I knew how skinny I was. And the moment that I realized that I owed it to myself and all of the people watching to choose to go myself and prioritize my health over this amazing experience that I, I wanted to stay in. That was the hardest part was that moment when I realized as much as I didn't want to go, I had to, that I wouldn't be in integrity with myself and my intentions for starting out. And I wouldn't be integrity with the world of people watching me if I sacrificed my long-term health for like winning and for a competition. Because I'm not competitive. I wasn't out there to win, but I wanted to be there as long as I possibly could. And uh, I, I just realized that I had to, I had to let go of the experience to save my body and my well-being and it was devastating and beautiful that makes perfect sense did were you able to get any meat or protein what what were your meals like yeah so i was on a narrow rocky peninsula and i had brought you know this is a huge lake and a fishing destination for all over the world you know amazing record lake trout and all kinds of northern fish species um i was in extraordinarily shallow waters and i had zero possibility at fish so that was a major major handicap to me also i was in a game scarce area it was a you know a fairly barren rocky peninsula and um Yeah, there wasn't a lot out there. Also, because I knew how important fishing was likely to be, I had chosen fishing line. And at the last moment, I had been planning to bring snare wire as one of my 10 items, but it was so incredibly windy. Those Arctic storm winds were blowing through our base camp before we launched. And I thought about trying to build a shelter without cordage. And I had planned to use my snare wire for cordage. But snare wire, you know, like any metal, it bends a couple times and then it snaps. So I was just picturing how hard it was going to be to not have cordage out there. And at the last minute, I switched out my snare wire for cordage. I was out there without snare wire. And the only game that I really had was small game that, 
you know, trapping was the way to take. I mean, I spent a lot of time roaming around with my bow and made a birch bark moose call and was trying to call in moose, but they just weren't there. It's the luck of the draw. You're just dropped where you're dropped. But I was able to take some game with my bow, um, a squirrel and grouse. And then mostly I was trapping and I had to figure out how to trap effectively using just paracord and fishing line because I didn't have snare wire, which meant that I couldn't just hang, you know, a simple snare that would take me five minutes to put up. I had to do an elaborate powered mechanism to get the animal up and off of its feet. Otherwise, it was just going to snip right through that fishing line and run away, which did happen a lot. So, yeah, so my my game was really limited both by my location and by my item choice. But I did manage to snare um, about 20 animals using fishing line. But I mean, we're talking like teeny little red squirrels. So I averaged, you know, about one teeny red squirrel and one snowshoe hare a week for my time out there. And many times, you know, I would get those in in close succession and then I would go weeks without anything. So I didn't eat way more days than I ate out there. And on no single day did I eat anywhere near the amount of calories that I was burning. How did you make these snares? I'm fascinated by this. <laughs> um, I would find two upright forked sticks. So like a, you know, a branch coming out of a tree that has a side branch. I would cut it so that I had a V. And then, so basically I had a long stake with a, with a fork. And then I would drive those into the ground and make a cross piece. And then I would either bend down a sapling and tie that to the cross piece or use a rock weighted mechanism up and over a branch and then had a noose hanging from the cross piece and the cross piece, you know, just very, very delicately placed against the tips of those forks so that the pressure of an animal, so that an animal with the noose around its neck pulling sideways would pull that horizontal piece out of those upright pieces and then the spring mechanism or the rock mechanism would lift it up and off of its feet. However, it was mostly rock. There was almost no soil. So finding places that I could actually drive my stakes down and that were on rabbit trails and also had a sapling nearby was very challenging. Was everybody dropped in similar terrain? No, no. The idea, I mean, they try to do the best job they can. There, there are no equivalent places in the wild. Um, so luck of the draw and, you know, m none of the women had any fishable waters. We were 10 people, seven men and three women. And for whatever reason, none of us had fish. So not having fish in that location is a huge, huge handicap, you know, and some people had big game. I didn't have any big game in my area or any fish. And I had sparse small game in my location too. Whereas the person who won had big game, wonderful fishing location and a ton of small game. He was put in an old burn spot. So it was just regrowing and it was incredibly abundant and he's incredibly skilled. I mean, he's an amazingly skilled man. So, you know, I'm not saying that it's that, but had I had anywhere near the resources, it could have looked really different. And, you know, there was one guy who was on an island and he had almost no game, very poor fishing, and there was no chance for any game just to wander into his location. He was on an island. He was completely stuck. So, no, the spots aren't equivalent. Um, they do the best they can. And that isn't the way the natural world works. No. That if you went out in November and you were there for 73 days, then that means you were dropped in around September. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep, mid-September. That is such a difficult time. I mean, it's not like berries are really thriving. There would be some, but it's kind of you know, starting to filter out. So what, what about greens? And yeah, no, most, most things were fading. There were mostly, most of the leaves were gone. There were no greens. I mean, one, 
my, I didn't have any soil. Like it was literally bare rock and sphagnum bogs. There was almost no soil. So there weren't, they wouldn't have been green plants anyway, besides those plants that can grow up through sphagnum. So crowberries and cranberries. And there was some wild roses, not on my peninsula, but on the mainland, which I could, you know, hike to the mainland and a little bit of blueberries. But yeah, the leaves were already off of most things. I mean, it had already frozen hard. So I found one withered, half dead fireweed plant that was like the only greenery I found and I tried to eat it and it was so bitter from being already so far in the season that I could tell that my, it was going to make me sick to eat it so there was no greenery it's an extremely harsh environment and yes they I think they do it on purpose to put you there when resources are low and so it's more of a challenge because it's incredibly expensive for them to produce you know they have like two boats and pilots and two helicopters and pilots and repair people on retainer every day in addition to like a whole production crew and someone to watch our GPS round the clock, you know. So I think that they, one, they want the drama of it being really extreme. They want the challenge of it and they don't want it to last forever because that's not good for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It costs so, yeah. too much. Talk to me about staying yeah. warm and also shelter. So, you know, I had a lot of debate before going because my work is tanning hides and making clothing with it and, you know, making natural gear with homemade natural materials. Leather and wool are, are two huge focuses for me. So I really had a big debate like, okay, we're going into this extreme environment that I've never spent time in before. I have lived in cold northern places. I've lived in northern Ontario and upstate New York and Vermont and Wisconsin. So I'm not a stranger to cold weather and harsh winters, but I'm from California. It's not, you know, it's not my my main MO, certainly. So, and I knew that a lot of people were going to be bringing the very fanciest technical gear because it's a competition and people wanted to give themselves the best chances. But I was doing this, this whole experience wasn't just about winning. It was about the experience and the deep dive and also to represent myself to the world. And what I see in a lot of these shows and with a lot of this, you know, big survival thing is this like tough mentality and like duking it out with the wild. And you have to be tougher than the next guy. And that's not my approach at all. To me, I have to be more dropped in, more connected, more humble than the next guy. I have to be listening and paying attention. That's what I wanted to represent. And I would have done better. I could have spent a lot more time focusing on my skills and honing my skill set if I had bought fancy technical gear, but I wouldn't be in integrity with who I am and what I represent. And my, my business is buckskin revolution. I teach people to make buckskin clothing. What would I be doing in the Arctic in synthetic gear? You know, so instead of focusing on other things, I spent that summer just busting my butt, making all of the gear that I possibly could, which looked like, you know, leather and felt and tanned furs and a fur parka. And I made, you know, I made a full set of knee high Arctic boots of bark tan deer hide with felt liners with buffalo and beaver fur on them. I made a fur lined parka with fur from New Zealand possible well, Australian brushy tailed possums from my time in New Zealand and, you know, rabbits that I had raised and the bobcat that I had had come to me magically right after being invited to do alone and all of these random furs from my life and a wool shirt and two different hats that were fur lined and making my gear. And so I knew that it was a risk. I knew that taking homemade gear that I had made and I believe in my craftsmanship, but this was shoddy gear because I had two months to make a million different things that I wanted. And rather than making a couple really high quality things, I tried to make it all. So I knew that it wasn't my best work. But it felt important to me to really represent the ancestral skills and natural materials and my work in buckskin clothing. So 
that's what I took. And my gear was enormous, right? Because buckskin and leather and, you know, wool and, and furs, these take up a lot more room than synthetics and down and whatnot. But ultimately, not only was I true to myself and what I do, but I think that I was much warmer in that handmade gear of natural materials. So that's when you ask staying warm, hands down, I think that I was more comfortable and warmer than most of the people out there with synthetic store-bought gear. So yeah, so my clothing was an additional shelter. You asked about shelter and my fur parka was definitely a big part of my shelter. And, you know, I did that having studied a lot of the indigenous people of far northern climates and knowing that this multiple layered system was how they stay warm and, um, you know, or is amongst some people still. And yeah, is your first shelter. So, so making the gear beforehand and trusting to the natural materials was huge. And then also I put a lot of time and energy to my shelter while I was up there. And I really, it was important to me to have it be beautiful and a work of art as well as very, very functional. And so I made a pretty elaborate system that was an A-frame with double walls and an entire row of peeled spruce poles for the inner wall and then an outer wall of unpeeled spruce poles. And then between those walls, I shoved it full of boughs and sphagnum moss. So I had, you know, a foot of insulation in the walls of my cabin. And then I heaped spruce boughs on the top of my cabin as well. And I spent a ton of time and energy on that shelter. I was still working on it up until day 70. <laughs> but I wanted it to be a thing of beauty and a thing I was proud of. And, you know, I wanted to really display myself to the world. That was, to me, that was winning, was getting to really represent my values and my skills and the things I love and the relationship and the love of the experience and the wild places. I didn't want to feel like I was out there suffering my way through, gritting my teeth to get to the prize. The prize was every moment that I was being out there. And so I choose to prioritize doing the things that felt good to me and that I love. And I love building and construction. And so this finely honed shelter with, you know, like using, using my saw and doing, you know, timber framing notches and, and getting things really nicely seated into one another. And I built a beautiful bedstead and I rounded every pole, you know, like I all peeled poles because I could, it was, it used a lot of calories doing it, but I loved it and I was enjoying it and it was inspiring to me. And that kept me, kept me engaged. You know, every day there was a project I was excited about. What takes a lot of people out in experiences like this is loneliness and boredom and angst and depression. And I was so inspired about everything that, yeah, just it didn't feel like suffering or hardship. So yeah, shelter and clothing were huge focuses for me and a huge part of how I stayed warm and conserved calories. So I knew that I was spending a lot of calories to make this really elaborate shelter. But every moment that I am warm instead of shivering is a handful of calories that I'm saving. So every moment where I came to a decision point, do I do the easy thing that will conserve calories? Or do I do the thing that gives me more long term potential and feels good to me and represents my values. I always chose that. And it turned out that, you know, I was the the runner up. I was, you know, if you, if you view it as a competition, I was second place. So those choices, even though I felt like I was compromising doing better, they actually served me better anyway. And I was healthier and happier. I mean, you know, I, I lost 50 pounds. I'm, I do not have 50 pounds to lose, you know, but I felt great. And even that, you know, I spent a lot of time in the ER getting checked out and my blood levels were okay. And I recovered well and I moved through the refeeding program at an accelerated pace. And I think all of that was because I was so 
dropped in and connected and inspired and loving it. Had I been having a miserable time and forcing myself to go through it, I think my body would have suffered a lot more, even given the same conditions. Yeah. Okay. So you couldn't just leave and pound a hamburger back. You had to go through a special program. Yeah. At that point, you know, people who don't stay out as long, but this was, you know, months of prolonged starvation. My entire digestive system was pretty shrunk. And there's a thing called refeeding syndrome. And what's, what it's best known for is actually when people were liberated from concentration camps and given food, a lot of them died right away. Um, your body cannot handle food after prolonged starvation. A lot of it has to do with electrolytes in your body and where your body stores electrolytes because electrolytes are also linked to electrical impulses in your in your body. And so if they move too rapidly, then it can throw off your electrical systems and that can stop your heart and it can damage your organs. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah, me neither. I thought I was getting a hamburger when I came out, but oh no, I was getting bone broth and pureed <laughs> vegetables for a long time. It's, it's such an interesting conversation for me because when I was in my teens, I just wanted to follow the footsteps of the indigenous people and go and disappear in the bush, build my own shop, basically do everything that you did there, but in a, in a slightly more accommodating environment. And in doing a little more research about our history, you know, the, the history of the, of the people in the world, it sounds like that wasn't necessarily something that anyone really was striving to do, to be out and alone in the bush. They had community, they had each other, they had roles, they had families, they had tasks and, you know, delegated tasks. And, and it really kind of hit me in the face when I, I podcasted Les Stroud from Survivor Man. And he was saying that, um, you know, it's not really, it's not really something that, that is done. Like everyone always thinks, well, how did they do it back then? That's what I hear all the time. How did they do it back then? Or, you know, people used to do that back then, but in most cases they didn't do that back then. They had a community. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Totally unrealistic. No native person would go out into the wilderness by themselves with no food and no knowledge of that environment at the start of winter. That is not a thing. That would be accidental. I mean, I'm sure it happened by accident at times, you know, or plane crashes or what have you. It happens now, but it is not, it is not, um, accurate to use the lens of, oh, well, people did this all the time, so I can do it. It's a different situation, as you say, you know, and one person might go, they would do it as a, as an initiation, as a vision quest, you know, as a challenge, not as a life way. Yeah, that makes sense. Now let's talk a little bit about Buckskin Revolution. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. And when, you know, when you and I spoke originally and, and you had told me that what you really specialize in is sewing, it, it really opened my mind to all the questions I have for you about that. And I'd love to walk through some of the process if that's okay. Sure. Yeah. So if, if I hadn't actually felt the buckskin and tan my own skin before, I wouldn't know just how special it is and how soft it is. Like I always try to explain, it's almost like a suede. And I think that when people think about sewing leather, they're automatically put off because they think to themselves, it's going to be really hard to get the needle through. And uh, I don't even know if I want to wear leather on my skin. It's not very soft. I just want to talk to you about what people might not know about buckskin and and how to, how to use it. Because when I tell people, you know, we're going to be doing some high tanning on Anchored Outdoors, they automatically assume it's with the fur on. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about with the fur off. Yeah. So yeah, huge subject. <laughs> Lots to talk about. I'd really like to focus with you after you've got the, the skin and, and the leather in hand. 
then what? Right. So, yeah, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking about buckskin and what makes it magical and unique. And one of the things that is really unique about brain tanned buckskin, which also there are things that are sold as buckskin, which are not brain tanned and suede is, is a whole different product too, because it is a split cowhide. It doesn't have the bounce and give and resiliency. But the thing that's amazing about buckskin is it is the least changed from the skin of a living animal of any other leather product you'll ever encounter. And that comes with a lot of beautiful things and a lot of challenges. And what it means is that it is completely unlike sewing with both cloth or other leathers that you've come into contact with, because most other leathers are actually put through machines that shave them down to a uniform thickness. So they're taking all of the variation and all of the natural things that that animal needed of its skin to live away from it. Buckskin retains all of those. And so, you know, I have these cardinal rules of buckskin sewing that I share. And one of them is be the deer. You know, forget everything you thought you knew about sewing and you need to learn to wear your buckskin clothing. And I've got a skirt on, but you can't really see it in this. But wear your buckskin clothing the way the deer wore it, because the deer grew this for a reason. For example, the neck of an animal, of an, a prey animal particular, is incredibly thick and tough. And if you are trying to make, you know, your summer weight tank top out of that, it's going to be miserable. It's going to be hard to work with. It's going to be uncomfortable. But the deer grew it that way for a reason, because deer are prey animals, and that's where mountain lions bite them. So that neck had to be super thick and tough to keep them alive. Where on your body do you need something super thick and tough? The bottoms of your feet, right? Make your moccasins out of the neck of the deer. Make your skirt out of the rump of the deer, right? Wear your hide the, wear the, the, the way the animal did. So I find buckskin so endlessly fascinating because it's not just, it's not just a cool material to work with. It tells me so much about the life of the animal that, that grew that skin. Like I understand the life history of deer through working with their skins and seeing how they wear on my body. It's one thing to make something that looks pretty when you stitch it all together. But sometimes if you don't know, if you don't understand the principles of buckskin sewing, the first time you put it on, it's going to start moving as you move in it and it's under tension and force. And if you didn't keep in mind the principles, it's going to end up all asymmetrical and weird and uncomfortable and changing shape on you. But if you understand the deer and you work with the hide, the way the hide, you know, is nudging you to, and you're listening and you're paying attention, you can make amazing, beautiful, comfortable buckskin clothing that is going to breathe. It's going to be comfortable and you're going to be wearing it for decades. The skirt I'm wearing right now is probably 15 years old and I wear it like almost every day. I think the most beautiful dresses I've seen have been made out of buckskin. They just have this beautiful, soft movement to them. It's just so, it's really, really fascinating. And, and I strongly encourage anyone who hasn't ever seen it or felt it to try to get their hands on some. Now, the neck, it's funny you should say that when I was grading my hide and got to the neck, it was, uh, hell. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't know how to use it. So that makes perfect sense. Use it as the, so were you using it as the sole of your moccasins? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's other things that it's good for too. You know, belt loops or things that you don't want to have stretch because buckskin's very stretchy and the neck is much less so. So there's a lot of other things you can do with it, but just, you know, being aware of where you're working and yeah, it can take, you know, scraping the neck can take just as long as scraping the entire rest of the hide. Right. 
Do you find that wearing buckskin while hunting is a lot quieter than wearing synthetics? Hands down, it's the best. It's like the only thing to wear hunting, in my opinion. Yeah, it's quieter. It's, you know, it doesn't pick up burrs. It smells like the forest instead of smelling like a person. You know, like that smoke smell is going to help mask your body scent more. Um, it gives you more protection. I also feel, you know, like... I, I can get a little esoteric in the ways I talk about things, but I feel like wearing buckskin when you're out hunting, especially if you're hunting deer, you are sending a message to those animals that you respect them enough to make use of every part of them. When I make, when, when I butcher an animal, when I choose to take an animal's life, I am making a commitment to that animal to give it another life through me, to use every bit of it, you know, as best I can and to Bring the consciousness of that animal with me as I move through life. So if I am out hunting and I am in the forest in buckskin, the forest is going to be paying attention and responding. And, you know, that that is that's my belief. So it's buckskin. It's very practical. It is quieter. It's way quieter than synthetic materials. It is way tougher. You know, it masks your smell better, but it's more than just those things. There's also the energy that it carries and the intent that it shows. And I think that that's important to pay attention to as well. I had heard something that back when they would do the tassels mm-hmm. in le- in leather, Fringe. that that was, yeah. Can you, can you explain why they used to do that? Why they do do that? You know, there's a million different theories about it and everyone will tell you something different. One is that it breaks up your body line, you know, so fringe on your sleeves, then you don't have a hard line showing your revealing your body form. One is that it is that it makes it easier for water to drip off of your clothes. It gives a place for drips to fall off. One is that fringe is just like a display of wealth. Like I've got so much buckskin, I can afford to cut it into teeny little pieces, um, you know, and then there's also just aesthetics. So, you know, like I don't think that there is an answer why fringe lots of different reasons and everyone probably has a different one. But I mean, I I tend not to use fringe because it feels like it's, you know, kind of in that gray area of cultural appropriation and doing replica stuff. I don't do any Native American style dress or replication. Um, I don't feel like it's appropriate for me as a white woman to do that without, without permission. So I do, I do modern tailoring or my own designs and not trying to replicate Native gear. Um, And so I, you know, and I did use fringe back in the day when I was younger and didn't have, you know, some of the the lens of cultural appropriation that I have now. But I do, I mean, the the breaking up the body's outline, I think, is a really practical application of fringe. But it's also loud, you know, it whacks against your body and you can hear it. Yeah, I'd heard about it for, you know, breaking up movement, but it, it is loud. It's interesting, the cultural appropriation, and we won't dive into it too much here, but where do you draw the line between cultural appropriation and living that lifestyle and just trying to create clothing that's functional and practical like they did like why is using why is weaving a basket not cultural appropriation but making a a jacket that looks like an indigenous person's jacket a cultural appropriation i don't understand totally yeah that's a great question and i think and i don't think that there is a clear line i think that it's just and i I write about this in my buckskin revolution book that you know everyone has a different place that they feel comfortable with and here i am i'm a i'm a white woman who's teaching hide tanning and buckskin sewing and i'm drawing a line i'm drawing a line where it feels comfortable and right to me and you know, there are some people who don't recognize cultural appropriation as a thing at all. And there are some people who feel like it's totally inappropriate for any person who isn't of native descent to do any, any skills in any way associated. And, um, for me, 
You know, it's because fringe, like I don't say that fringe is cultural appropriation. I say that to me, it gets close to that slippery slope and that gray area that is more comfortable for me to avoid. And I, I have ancestors who wore buckskin, you know, like buckskin is part of our common heritage. Naturally tanned leather is how humans evolved, how humans left the tropical zone for temperate zones was because they figured out how to do that. So in that way, I feel like things that I can trace my history back to are different than things that are associated with the specific peoples that I don't have a relationship with and don't have permission. And particularly, I think that what makes technically cultural appropriation is anytime you're using something from another culture, and that's not always bad. So to be precise, cultural misappropriation would be the problem. But generally speaking, something to look at is like where the power structure lines. Indigenous people were slaughtered and enslaved and kicked off of their land by my ancestors. You know, in that way, it's different for me to use something from that culture than another culture that I don't have a deep history with and that there isn't a power. In, you know, there's still a tremendous amount of racism against indigenous people, a lot of poverty, a lot of, you know, disenfranchised people. And in that way, that's where we have to pay more attention to when we're taking, when we are the people in power and we're taking from people who have lesser power, that's when it gets, it gets dicier. So yeah, it's a great question and there is no firm answer. Yeah. If anyone listening, but I think it's important to have the conversations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone listening, um, I did an episode with Spencer Greening. I'd have to check back to see which episode number it is, but if you just type in, in the podcast, Spencer Greening, you'll be able to hear he, he and I, spoke about this for two hours. And I think that's got some very interesting points in it just for people listening who want to, you know, scratch the surface on the conversation. Now let's get back to sewing. Obviously you're not using regular thread. No. And in fact, I'm not even using needles. I'm using an awl and I could go and grab my tools to show you, but I'm using an awl, which is a very fine pointed awl that I make myself because I don't think that the commercial ones actually are are very worthwhile and a thin piece of buckskin to sew with. So I'm not, I, I occasionally use thread for like sewing up holes or something, but I'm a big advocate of using the hide itself as your sewing material. It doesn't require any external inputs. It is custom made for the exact seam you're working from. It's keeping the same energy that everything that I'm wearing is of the wild without any, any connection to any factory anywhere, you know? Um, and I think that it wears better. That because the the buckskin thong and the buckskin are of the same nature, whereas thread isn't, th- thread will actually cut the buckskin as the buckskin stretches away from the thread and the thread doesn't give. So, and also, you know, an awl is a big tool that's easy to keep track of as opposed to a million little needles that you're g- dropping and breaking and what have you. I also like it aesthetically. I mean, you can tell at look by looking at any buckskin clothing that, that I make or that folks make sewing with needle and or with an awl and thong that it's handmade, you know? So it's also kind of representing that the aesthetic and the ideal of making things for ourselves rather than relying on factory made goods. So for a whole lot of reasons, um, I just really prefer awl and thong and that's what my book focuses on. And that's what I teach. Now, isn't an awl more or less a hole puncher, if I recall? Um, it, yeah, it's, it's basically a long, thick needle. A, a punch generally removes some material, 
versus an awl that's pushing the fibers across like apart to make a hole. Um, and that's one of the reasons a lot of the commercial awls will be bladed. So they're actually slicing the fibers and the hole might start out small, but because you've damaged the fiber structure, the hole is going to stretch out more and more and tear over time. Whereas a nice, small, fine, rounded awl just gently pushes aside the fibers and you're not cutting or damaging anything. So the, you're going to maintain the integrity of your seams and your garments way more over the long term using awl and thong. What about sinew? Can you use that to sew? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're, if you're wanting to keep with the energy of, you know, from the animal itself, and I just finished two days ago, finished filming a video about harvesting backstrap sinew and using it for thread. One can, and yeah, that's great. It's a very, it's a different aesthetic and a different technique, and it's not one that I'm as drawn to. But if I am using a needle and thread, sinew is a great way to go. But I, I really prefer the, the thong and, and all method. So I don't do as much sinew sewing. But for furs, I definitely use needle and thread for furs. And sinew is a great way to go for that. It's harder to use than thread. You know, it's in short lengths and it's tapered and it's a little scratchy. But I mean, it's an amazing natural material to have access to for sure. Yeah, crazy. Okay. So what about, I know when I'm sewing, I sew everything, all my seams together, and then I flip my material inside or I flip my product inside out the seams and all of the, I'm not great with terminology here, but all the seams are inside and they're soft enough so that they don't rub. I mean, I might sew them down. It just depends on who's wearing it and on what part of the body. But what about with leather? Do you turn it inside out? So here, this is a huge subject that I focus on in my teaching. Forget everything you thought you knew about working with cloth when you're working with buckskin. Okay. Because no, you don't want to do that because buckskin is thick. A seam of buckskin is like a quarter inch thick <laughs> and hard. And if you make Yeah, if you make a tight fitting garment, that's called the plain seam, the folded inside out, because it's like what almost all clothes use. So plain and that it's ubiquitous. You, if you take off a fitted garment of buckskin that was sewn like that, you will have a line pressed into your body where that seam was. It's not comfortable. So I use that seam for certain places in garments. It's a very strong seam. So I'll use it for attaching. I'll use it for the butt crack because I do not want the butt crack stretching out or gapping. And there's a natural crevice in my body right there, so I'm not going to feel that thing pressing in. I use it for attaching sleeves because there's kind of a crevice there, and I want that to be a really, really strong thing. But otherwise, I tend to use overlapping seams, which lay flat and don't press against my body. They're way harder to sew that way because, you know, you can't just run right along the seam. You have to turn it back and forth each time. But I always tell people, you are going to be wearing this garment for decades, potentially, taking an extra couple hours to sew it together well, so it's going to be more comfortable and more ergonomic, it's worth the time. So yeah, you have to really rethink what you know. Like also, I don't use knots at all. People want to just take what they know from sewing with needle and thread and cloth and apply it to buckskin. And it doesn't apply. If you look at a piece of buckskin thong, it's like a thousand times thicker than a piece of thread. So again, you're going to feel that knot. Plus buckskin is stretchy. So the whole on the other side of that knot could eventually stretch out enough that your knot pops right through. And then where are you? So, but because buckskin thong is thick, you can splice it. You can put a hole through your thong and thread the end through and have something that's more secure and more comfortable than a knot and is using the nature of buckskin for what it's best at rather than denying its nature and trying to make it be like cloth when it's nothing like cloth. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness, this is so exciting. What about undergarments? <laughs> did, did, do you ever wear it as a base layer or is it always over top? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have made buckskin bras and wear them. I tend to 
I like to make more fitted buckskin clothing that is going to provide support without needing undergarments, you know, like for, for upper garments, I would rather make a fitted top than a bra and a looser top. But buckskin isn't the best thing for underwear because it is stretchy, but it doesn't bounce back. So it's very different than knit cloth. So one can, um, but if you're being, you know, if you're being a purist, I would probably just design, not plan to wear underwear. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds right. What about dyeing it? Can you dye it different colors? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The one thing they have to be worried about is not using dyes that require heat to set them. So dyes that have a natural mordant. A mordant is something that bonds the, the chemical of the dye to the fiber you're trying to dye. So tannins are things that have natural, that are a natural mordant. So things like, you know, acorn hulls, black walnut hulls, tea leaves, coffee, uh, you know, a lot of barks and, and nuts and that kind of thing are heavy in tannins. You can, um, you can use other dyes. You can use cochineal and indigo and like standard dyes that you would use for other fibers. You just can't use them hot because boiling buckskin will destroy it. So as I said, buckskin, you know, of all leathers, it retains more of the properties of the skin of a living animal. And that means that it is, you know, anything that would burn you will burn and damage your buckskin. So you can't use high heat dyes and synthetic and chemical dyes could potentially damage your buckskin. But there are a lot of natural dyes that work well with it. How do you wash it? I just wash it. I also just put out a video on YouTube last week about washing your buckskins. I do it in a five gallon bucket with warm water and just scrub it on itself. And I tend to only use soap if it's really, really grungy and greasy because the soap will draw out some of the smoke color and your buckskins will end up pale and washed out a lot faster. Do you have to... But, but also... No, go ahead. I was just going to say that um, buckskin stands up better to washing and drying and human sweat and that kind of thing than other leathers. A lot of other leathers will get stiff and, and weird with getting wet and dry and wet and dry. But buckskin, again, being more similar to the skin of a living animal, it can handle getting wet and dry and wet and dry. So it's great to wash your buckskins. Um, and a lot of folks are afraid of it, but I always encourage it because it really helps maintain your buckskins over the long term if you're washing them. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had to restretch them again, but it sounds like you could just hang them to dry. You don't want to hang them because they're so substantial that the just the weight. Mm -hmm. So buckskin is so stretchy that the direction that force is applied is the direction that it will stretch. So if you hang them, they're going to end up long and skinny compared to how they were. So if, if they stretched out and you want them more skinny, then great, hang them. But if you want them to stay, you know, a similar shape, then lay them out flat and you want to dry them slowly. And I do I do go and stretch them a little bit once in a while when they're drying, but you don't, you shouldn't like, if you have to really, really work your buckskin, then it probably wasn't tanned as well as you want to begin with. Yeah. I feel like if it's starting to feel like rawhide, you probably miss something in the process there. For sure. Yeah. But it will dry stiff if it dries super hot and super fast. So just like, just like, you know, a pair of jeans will stiffen on the line, buckskin will do that, but it just shouldn't be, you know, care, care in how you do it will reduce that. And yeah, it shouldn't get super stiff. If so, that's a tanning problem, not a washing problem. Yeah. Uh, well, Wania, I just think you are absolutely incredible and so fascinating. <laughs> Where can people find you. find your book? Um, so right now it is still it's still in the editing phase. So I was for a while selling it as a rough draft. Right now, the only way to get that is um, my Patreon members have access to buying my book. So joining my Patreon team gets you a copy of my book at certain levels or access to buying the book at lower tiers. So that is a way to get it. And eventually it is going to be 
out and signing up for my mailing list on my website is a great way to stay in the loop about when it's actually published and ready to be purchased in that way. So how it's available now is as PDF files of my chapters in rough draft form. So all of the information, but not beautifully edited right now. <laughs> is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, I feel like I don't know that much about Anchored Outdoors and what all you do. So I feel like that's a that's a bigger subject. But yeah, I guess your like your mission statement and what it is that that your focus is with Anchored. Yeah, taking people like myself who's mildly intimidated by it all, but knows in my heart that it's something that I need to learn more of or at least commit the time to learning more. And really speaking to experts like yourself and putting us all under one roof. So Fish Hunt Forge Homestead, just an abundance of quality content that people don't need to, they don't need to look you up and see if you're genuinely the best in the business. By going to Anchored Outdoors, they know that if you're there, you're the best that there is. So my mission statement is really just providing quality education to people who want to do better and become more connected to the land and themselves. Great. Yeah. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. And I hope that we can have you back on soon. That would be lovely. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you so much. It's been a lovely conversation. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 